Well, welcome back to another Wednesday night Bible study. We're up to Isaiah chapter 49. In fact, last week we didn't quite finish chapter 48, so we need to go back and just finish that chapter and then get into chapter 49. I'm not sure if we'll finish chapter 49, but we should get a good way through that. Now, I also want to go back and spend a bit of time on a question that Sister Lena asked in the Q&A last week around Isaiah 48 verse 1, and that is about uh, Jacob being pulled forth out of the waters of Judah. Uh, and so we'll talk a bit about that, finish off chapter 48, and then get into chapter 49. Let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we pause before our study tonight. Uh, ever so grateful to you, Lord, that of the billions of people on this planet, uh, you have handpicked us and you've given us access to these ancient writings and you've given us this desire to understand what these prophets of old understood. And you've given us the ability, Father, to see more than they saw, to understand more than they understand if we can only build on their understanding, accept their understanding, and then build on it and tie it into what we see happening in the world around us today. We are so close to the return of your son. We thank you so much for the privileged position that we have to love your word, to love you, to love Jesus Christ. And we just pray, Father, for you to uh, be with us and strengthen us. We thank you, Lord God, and we praise you in Jesus Christ's most holy name. Amen. So let's, uh, let's begin then, and we'll get into the uh, study for tonight, beginning with uh, Sister Lena's question around um, the, the strange statement in Isaiah 48 and verse 1, which, uh, we'll, we'll just read it again. He says, Hear you this, O house of Jacob. So very clearly we see who he, who he is addressing, and that has been very clear to us from the beginning, from chapter 1. He says, Hear you this, O house of Jacob, which are called by the name of Israel. So this is the house of Jacob, and we know that Jacob was, uh, we, he was converted, and God gave him the name Israel. Uh, upon his conversion, but uh, prior to that, he was a very carnal man uh, named Jacob, and so God refers to this carnal nation uh, by the name of the house of Jacob, but he says they're called by the name of Israel, which is a very exalted name, you know, prevail with God, the prince with God, and a very exalted, very holy name. Uh, is he saying, you're just called that, and, but that's a very high honor that you have, and then he says this, and you are come forth out of the waters of Judah. So you have come forth out of the waters of Judah, which is again a very high privilege. And notice that this house of Jacob is tied to Judah. That is because God has divorced the northern tribes. Assyria has gone in or will go in and destroy them and, and it's over for them uh, until Christ returns. But for now, that's it for them. And the thread with God and Israel is now in Judah. And these are the people that come forth out of the waters of Judah. They swear by the name of the Lord and make mention of the God of Israel. This is a very high honor that they have, that they are able to uh, swear by the name of the Lord and make mention of the God of Israel, but not in truth nor in righteousness. So obviously there is a problem with the appearance and the substance, that they are not actually 
um, truly living up to the great name and honor that they have. But Lena's question specifically was, what does it mean, or what does God mean, when Isaiah writes that they have come forth out of the waters of Judah, specifically that term, waters of Judah? And about the best, uh, Sister Lena uh, and everyone that I can make of this, <clears throat> is this has to do with the womb. That they are DNA descendants of the tribe of Judah. And this, this is why they are considered uh, of the waters of Judah. So you think of the, when a woman gives birth, the, the water breaks and the child comes forth. And so they have the great honor of being among this chosen tribe. And, and God is saying, you have the blessing of coming out of this tribe. And it is a mind-blowing blessing to be of the tribe of Judah, the God of the universe, has, has specifically selected this tribe to carry a great honor eternally. And they, have, they, they are carrying this eternal honor, but they're not living up to it. And this, uh, in fact, I'm really glad Sister Lena raised this, because when we look at verse 8, we, we covered this last week, but we'll understand it better when we understand that they have the honor of coming out of the waters, or the womb, of Judah. He says here in verse 8, Yes, you heard not, yea, you knew not. Yea, from that time that your ear was not opened, for I knew that you would deal very treacherously, and you were called a transgressor. So Judah was called a transgressor. Uh, for how long was Judah called a transgressor? Well, God makes it very clear. He says, you were called a transgressor from the womb. So this is, this is a people that, you know, uh, we're, not, we're not here defending Zionism. We're not here saying Jews are just so such wonderful people. They're the people of God and they can do no wrong. The Bible says they do wrong. And in fact, God says they deal very treacherously. According to this covenant that they're in with him, they are treasonous with it. And they are a transgressor from the womb. And this is, again, what is meant by from the waters of Judah. So, so if we tie verse 8 back to verse 1, that they've come forth out of the waters of Judah, then verse 8 makes it clear that those waters are the womb. And that's, that, that will, that's going to help us in our understanding as we move through the rest of 48. We got up to verse uh, 18 last week. As we move through the rest of 48 and into 49, this theme of coming out of the womb, though coming out of the waters of Judah, is critical. Uh, and in fact, it was mentioned earlier, if we go back a couple of chapters to chapter 46, he says, Hearken unto me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel, which are born by me, notice this, from the belly, which are carried from the womb. This is a big deal to God, that, that you have the honor, the distinct privilege of being born through this line. And you come out of the, this, the, the womb of this line. It, it is no small privilege, but they're just taking it for um, entitlement. We are entitled. We're, we're Judah. We're entitled. And they're not living up to the great honor and purpose that God has outlined for this tribe. So let's continue now with that backdrop, which is very, very helpful as we're going to go through the rest now of chapter 48. And we're, we're breaking into a new section of 2nd Isaiah, beginning in chapter 49, 
the shift now is, is we're going to move from this focus that God ha- has has had on um, God has been very much focused on reassuring and comforting Judah, and we're going to move from the focus of the comfort of Judah and and God's promise of redeeming Judah to the mechanism that God will use, the ultimate mechanism that God will use to redeem Judah, and that is our Lord Jesus Christ. And, and Isaiah has so much to say about Jesus Christ. And when Jesus Christ came, he had so much to say about what Isaiah said. And so any understanding that we have of the gospel that is not rooted in Isaiah, it's, it's a false understanding. And, and 99.9% of the Christian world out there that is preaching Jesus Christ is preaching a false Jesus Christ. I said it. Let me repeat it. 99.9% of Christianity, of the preachers that are out there preaching repentance and salvation and come to Jesus Christ, they're preaching a false Jesus Christ. How do I know? It doesn't reconcile with Isaiah. So they have to take their message and they have to reconcile it with Isaiah, as do we. And as I've mentioned earlier, God is so uh, proud of what he is bringing to pass that he declares it before it happens. And he says to to Israel, and specifically Judah, be strong and don't fear, because this is what's going to happen. And this is proof that I am God, and I'm the only God. And if we end up preaching what Isaiah didn't say, and therefore what God didn't say, and we end up preaching false prophecy, and, and, and not declaring what God has declared, we are negating the very proof that the God of the universe, the creator of the universe, gives very specific proof that he is God. We need to stand behind that proof. And so we're going to now see, as we get into the rest of this chapter, how God is going to pull off this miraculous redemption of his people. Uh, Judah, and specifically, and in particular, but Israel, and then ultimately the whole Gentile world. So let's, uh, let's continue then where we left off. In, in chapter 48, we'll come down to verse 18. And you just hear the pain in God's voice here. He says, Oh, that you had hearkened to my commandments. Uh, God just wishes, Oh, that you had hearkened to my commandments. Then, if you, if you had listened, so he opened up saying, You're, you're hypocrites. You, you have a show of righteousness, you have the name, you have all the external appearances and accoutrements, but it's not real. Oh, if only it was real. If you only understood what my plan is for you and how I'm going to use this tribe of Judah to save the whole world, if only you lived up to it. He says here, Oh, oh you hear the, the anguish. Oh, that you had hearkened to my commandments. Then had your peace been as a river. And it's interesting, we're going to see a lot of, um, uh, how shall I say, uh, theme around water. So Judah comes out of the water, or Israel, these people come out of the waters of Judah. And we see that constantly referring back to the womb. But throughout these passages, there's something to do with water that God repeats. But here he says, then had your peace been as a river. So you, you could have had wonderful peace, but not just you, 
he says, and your righteousness as the waves of the sea. Again, that, that watery metaphor. But he says this as well. Your seed also had been as the sand. And the offspring of your bowels, again, we see this notion of water, that you came out of the womb of Judah, and your offspring will come out of the womb of Judah, and you could have had great peace. And your offspring could have had great peace. It didn't have to be the way that it's going to be. But you chose this. You've decided on this fate of yours. And yet, despite your treachery, despite your unfaithfulness, God is saying, I am not unfaithful. I'm going to find a way to redeem you, despite your unfaithfulness. This is the good news. This is the gospel, according to Isaiah. And this is what Christ came to preach. He says, your seed also had been as the sand. So think of a beach and all the, the, the sand on that beach alone. And then think of all the beaches in the world. This could have been your seed. Un uncountable. And the offspring of your bowels, like the gravel thereof. His name should not have been cut off, nor destroyed from before me. But this is the fate that you've chosen. Your name is going to be cut off. You're going to be destroyed in front of my eyes. Why? Because I'm a faithful God. And this was the covenant arrangement that we entered into. So you do your part, I do my part. You don't do your part, I still do my part, which is to punish you according to the covenant, but then not to forget you, to still find a way to redeem you according to the covenant. He says here, uh, so here now, if we fast forward, uh, when the Lord was on the earth, you hear the same anguish in the Lord. It's the same God. It's the same voice. Here in Luke 13 and verse 34, he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which kills the prophets and stones them that are sent unto you, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? So your children did not have to suffer or will not have, shouldn't have suffer the way they're going to suffer. And you think of just the Holocaust alone, which was a dress rehearsal. You think of just that alone. This is the fate of the children of Judah. And, and the God of Judah is saying, this is so unnecessary. It did not have to be this way. And you hear now the God of Judah, when he's walking upon the earth, having the same anguish that he had when he spoke through Isaiah that your children didn't have to suffer, I would have protected them, but you wouldn't have it this way. You chose to walk away from me. You chose to reject me. You chose to break my commandments. You chose to bring these curses upon your children. So he says, Behold, your house is left unto you desolate, and we should read into this, the fate of the children of Judah. So these people are making decisions not just for themselves, but for their descendants. Your house is left unto you desolate. This has to happen. This desolation has to happen. Why? Because God is a faithful God. He never speaks in vain. He never says something and then says, oh, I didn't mean that. Every word of God is true. Every word of God is true. And so because of this truth of God's word, your house because of your choice, is now left unto you desolate. So this is the fate of the children of Judah. 
And verily I say unto you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you shall say, and, and they, they will be dead. So clearly this is now speaking of the identity of the tribe, and it's speaking of their descendants who, who are living in the time of Jesus Christ. And they will say, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. So let's go back now to Isaiah. So I just wanted to demonstrate there how it is the same. Uh, Jesus Christ is the God of Israel. He is the Holy One of Israel. He is the God of Isaiah. And so when he came, he's quoting the book of Isaiah. We mustn't think that, oh yeah, Old Testament, and then the New Testament is something completely different. It, there's no continuity. There is complete continuity. And so here, let's continue now in Isaiah 48, verse 20, where here he says, he says, basically, get out of Babylon. Go you forth of Babylon. And, and remember, Isaiah is writing this when Judah is seeing the superpower Assyria, mighty, mighty power in the land, what they're going to do or they're doing to Israel, seeing that they, are, they have uh, intents and design on Judah. Judah's panicking and wondering what they should they do about Assyria. And Isaiah's coming along and saying, you need to worry about Babylon, which is just a, a, a mediocre, insignificant city that you need to worry about Babylon. And, and then while talking about the, the devastation that Babylon is going to bring, he also speaks about the redemption. And so now he's saying, get out of Babylon, leave Babylon. And this has rings of, or this is certainly echoed in Revelation chapter 18, when John writes, uh, come out of her, my people. Same God, come out of her, my people. Go you forth of Babylon, flee you from the Chaldeans. So again, the way Isaiah writes, he pins it down. Do you, we cannot say that Babylon, you know, some people think that America is Babylon. But, but Isaiah wants to be very clear here. He's speaking of the Chaldeans. So it's not, it's, Babylon is not a concept. It is very much a concept that's worldwide, that the whole world has subscribed to, just as in the future, the whole world will subscribe to the Jerusalem agenda. Today, the whole world subscribes to the Babylonian agenda. But... but um, Isaiah is very clear, and the way he writes, he's not just writing for the immediate uh, catastrophe. He's writing long-term because he writes in the context of the last days and the return of Jesus Christ. So this, this immediate catastrophe is, is just a dress rehearsal. It's, a, it's a, an antitype of the ultimate fulfillment, and the way he writes, he makes it very clear. So, so it's time to leave Babylon, flee from the Chaldeans. Chaldeans are a, a specific people in the Middle East. With a voice of singing, declare you. So just after telling them how hypocritical they are, how treacherous they are, he's now telling them that they can leave their oppressor with a voice of singing. So something has happened to make this possible. And that's what Isaiah is going to go into next when we get into chapter 49. So, well, it, it, immediately it's, it's uh, Cyrus who's going to enable them to leave in a, in a pattern, but ultimately it's Jesus Christ. So he says, with a voice of singing, declare you. So this is such a joyful time that they can leave their oppressors. They're to declare it singing. So, so God declares it, and they are his witnesses, so they are now to declare it. Tell this, utter it, even to the end of the earth. Say you, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. 
So Jacob is his servant. And salvation, redemption, the purpose of the Lord, it all has to do with the redemption of Jacob. And, and we need to be very careful. Again, I've mentioned this replacement theology where we just dismiss Jacob. Jacob. Jacob is this, this carnal man who had descendants. And these descendants matter to God. And he is acting to redeem these people. And he's going to put his spirit in these people. And these people are going to love him. And this is, we cannot just uh, brush this aside and say, oh, that's all replaced. It's now the church. That was the Greek philosopher's agenda in the early church. That was the Catholic agenda. And the Protestants inherited as well a form of, I should say a form, just ultimately it's anti-Semitism, that they hated the Jews so much. They hated the privileged position that the Jews had with God that they came up with this religion that just dismissed them, just got rid of them and the church replaces them. But when we read the scriptures carefully, God will not give his glory to another. And he says that in Isaiah chapter 47, I believe we read that. 47 or it was 48 last week. But he says that, so if we say it's the church, then the glory that was in these people, God has taken that glory away from them, and he's now given it to the Gentile church. So we're calling God a liar. So we have to reconcile all of this. What is the role of the church? Uh, how do we, because uh, we are certainly glorified in Christ. So how are we glorified in Christ while God is still glorifying and fulfilling his promise to these people, his servant Jacob? And so we have to understand this, this role that we have as first fruits, which is an early harvest, while he's working out the ultimate plan with the fall harvest, first fruits being recorded to help him, and ultimately everybody, we'll, we'll have to go back and revisit uh, Revelation to see how this all comes together, but we'll do that. Isaiah will force us to go into Revelation and, and show how these two paths converge and how the church and the physical people of Israel ultimately come together as one. And we just have to understand the high privilege that we have of being in this early harvest, this first fruit harvest, which I'm afraid many, many brethren, and I don't just mean in our church, CGI, I mean Church of God, broadly speaking. Uh, we take it for granted. Oh, yeah, we're first fruits. Everything's just one. We're first fruits. And, and I, we're not seeing the, the all-out effort of, of a, a people who understand what a high privilege this is. Instead, we're just seeing, in fact, this kind of accusation that God made of physical Judah, that you're called by the name of Israel, and you call on the God of Israel, but not in truth and not in righteousness. Uh, we need to be careful about that. And our Pastor Murray is doing a series or has been doing a series. I think he'll be continuing this on holiness and, and the importance of us fulfilling this call to holiness. And I think if we have this vision of what it means to be a first fruit, uh, we're going to be all out. We're going to be all out. Time is short. It's, it's running out. And, and, and the glory that will be revealed in us is it's phenomenal. But that glory that will be revealed in us is a foretaste. It's a first fruits foretaste of the glory that will be revealed in Israel because we have all been grafted into Israel and we are just a foretaste of the ultimate glorification of Israel. And, and, and Revelation and Isaiah together make this crystal clear. But that's for another, uh, another lesson or another study in the future. Uh, so if he says here he, he has redeemed, who has he redeemed? His focus is on his servant Jacob. So says God. 
I'm not making this up. I'm reading the scripture. He has, so, so they are to come out of Babylon singing with a high hand that God has redeemed his servant Jacob. Now, Isaiah says this earlier in uh, chapter 25, in verse 9, he says, And it shall be said in that day, this is an ultimate, this is pointing to the return of Christ, it shall be said in that day, lo, this is our God. And this ties into Zechariah 12. This is our God. We have waited for him. And so there's this notion here of, of faithfulness, that there's an understanding that they come to. Somebody is comforting them. Somebody is preaching the true gospel to them. They're finally getting it, and they're waiting. That they, Despite all of this persecution all around them and the suffering that they're going through, they're waiting for their Messiah faithfully. We have waited for him, and he will save us. And this is the salvation. This is the good news of salvation. It's not this sort of very loosey-goosey, God is just going to save everyone, and just, 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 you just have to say, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me say this, the Savior's prayer. Oh, Lord, forgive me of my sins, and I believe in you, and suddenly, presto, change, I'm now in the kingdom, once saved, always saved. This is nonsensical. God is very precise. He's working out something very specifically. And, and somebody has preached this truth to these people, so that they can now have confidence to wait for him. And he is coming to save them. They understand that this is salvation. This is the gospel. This is the Lord. There's been a controversy. There's been another Lord that's been promoted. There's been another Lord that's been accepted. And finally, Judah has the, the, the upper hand and the triumph to say, this is the Lord. We have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in what? In his salvation. This is the salvation. This is the good news. This, this, this is the good news that we must be preaching. In Isaiah 13 and verse 19, he says here that, And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms. So we are in the process now. This is God's strange work. The world is changing very rapidly. America has been this incredible superpower. Uh, that, you know, young nation, 250. 49 years old, say let's 250 years old, a very young nation having achieved this climax of power that the world has never seen. And, you know, all this kind of power is very hard to manage. But you know what? As far as history goes, these American leaders have been phenomenal. And they have, no nation has been this powerful that has benefited so many people around the world. And it's a nation that uses its superpower to say, okay, we could subjugate you and tax you forever, but we prefer to trade with you. You can have your culture, you can have whatever you like, but let's do trade together. And don't, don't, don't invade us, don't, don't try to subjugate us. And we'll, we'll, for the most part, we'll manage you, but we're not going to destroy you. That's America. And I, you know, search the annals of history. We haven't seen anything like this. I think the closest would have been Persia. But then even Persia was very, very uh, oppressive. And you just have to read uh, Esther and how they treated the women to see what kind of uh, uh, subjugation the, the Persians put the, the other nations through. But now, so people think America is Babylon. This is ridiculous. Babylon is Babylon. It is that great city. That's Babylon. And, and it, has a, it has a system and a, and a concept and a philosophy that spreads throughout the world. 
and Babylon, the glory of kingdom. So we're in this process of seeing Babylon rising. And in the next few years, couple of decades, we're not sure it's happening very quickly, we're going to see the uh, Judeo-Christian nations come down, and we're going to see the Babylonian nations rise. And Babylon specifically, we're going to see it dripping in opulence. And it's going to be the glory of kingdoms. It was, and it shall be. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms. And again, Isaiah is very specific. In case we go wandering off and saying, America is Babylon. The beauty of the Chaldees' excellency. This, this is the pinnacle of their power. This is the height of their glory. It's the beauty of the Chaldees' excellency. It shall be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. So it's, it's going to rise to a height and a beauty and a splendor that everyone's going to believe that truly this must be the true God. Because look at the splendor, look at the wealth, look at the opulence. And God is going to personally destroy it. It shall never be inhabited. Neither shall it be dwelt in from generation to generation. It is full of such perversion. And, and the way that it has uh, achieved its power has been through corruption. And God is going to bring it down. He says, it shall never be inhabited ever again. So this, this again tells us why we know that this cannot be, he cannot be speaking of the Babylon that took Judah, Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon. He cannot be speaking about this because he says it will never be dwelt in again. And, and you can just look today that people are dwelling in it. In fact, it's rising. So this is when it's ultimately destroyed. It shall never be dwelt in, it shall never be inhabited, neither shall it be dwelt in from generation to generation. It's over for Babylon. And notice this, he says, neither shall the Arabian pitch his tent there. So the Arabian is pitching his tent there, and, and God calls out specifically, I, this is not me, I'm, not, I'm just reading the scripture, that the Arabian obviously is in a position of incredible power, and, and he's doing his will, he's doing whatever he wants, and God is saying that power will end, and the Arabian will not be able to do this again. Neither shall the Arabian pitch tent there, Neither shall the shepherds <clears throat> make their fold there. And, and in Matthew 24, again, speaking of the Arabian, the Lord himself says, Therefore, if they shall say unto you, Behold, he is in the desert. So, so who's in the desert that, that's surrounding uh, Israel today, surrounding Jerusalem today? The Arabian. So when the Arabian says to you, Hey, our, Christ has returned. He's in the desert. Do not go forth. Behold, he is in the secret chambers. Don't believe it. So, so we cannot fall for this deception if we understand the Lord's purpose. We would say that doesn't make any sense. We read the scriptures. We understand Isaiah. We understand the prophets. We understand Genesis. We understand Revelation. Why would he be in the desert? Why would he come and his people are still being destroyed? Why would he come and his people are being slaughtered? We understand that when he comes, he's returning to the Mount of Olives. He's returning to Jerusalem. He's returning to redeem his people. So, you know, you say, pull the other one. You're pulling my leg. Pull the other one. Uh, no, when he returns, he's returning to redeem Jacob, to redeem, redeem Judah. In Isaiah 14, verse 1, he says, For the Lord will have mercy on Jacob. We know that Jacob is hypocritical. We know that Jacob is treacherous. 
whatever accusations I hear, oh, Zionism and they want to throw all these accusations and America and Britain and, and all these. Yeah, sure. Great. Tell me your worst accusations because God's accusations are actually worse. And despite the character flaws, the Lord will have mercy on Jacob and will yet choose Israel and set them in their own land. He gave them the land. And everybody's crying out, oh, we, there were people there before and it's their land. Hey, it's God's land. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And the people in that land were very wicked. And God said, wipe them out. I'm done with them. I'm giving this land to my servant Abraham, my friend Abraham. And I'm covenanting with him to give his descendants this land. And it's a covenant that he's made. And so he will set them in their own land. This is the agenda that God has. And the strangers shall be joined with them. So there is going to be a wholesale repentance uh, in the Gentile world. I shouldn't say wholesale, because from Zechariah 14, we see that the, some of the Egyptians and others will refuse to come to Jerusalem to acknowledge the people of God and keep the Feast of Tabernacles and keep the Holy Days. They'll refuse. And so there'll be no rain on them, and they will die, they will die a slow, agonizing death and anybody who fights against his people, uh, God will curse them. But at the same time, from Revelation 7, we see that there's a, there is a significant repentance in the Gentile world. And people will acknowledge that God is the God of Israel. And strangers shall be joined with them. And they shall cleave to the house of Jacob. And this is what God wants. The world is not right as long as Jacob is not right. Because God has declared that Jacob must be the head nation. And, and we can't just go about our business and we don't care about Jacob. We don't care about Jerusalem. David says, let my right hand forget her skill if I forget Jerusalem. Let my tongue cleave unto my mouth so I can't even speak if I forget Jerusalem. And that's the kind of passion for Jerusalem we should have. And, 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 and Paul says, I, my, my, my desire, my heart's desire is that all Israel be saved. And if we have God's desire, we'll be like Paul. That that's what this is about. And being part of the first fruits is to be recruited into this agenda, to put the world right. And so the world will cleave to the house of Jacob. And the people shall take them. And bring them to their place. So there's this big argument over uh, Jerusalem. Armies are surrounding Jerusalem to root Judah out of there and say, you have no right to be there. And when God comes to set the world right, they acknowledge, no, you do belong there. And all the captivity and these people that have been enslaved all around the world, the people shall take them and bring them to their place. This is your place. You belong here. Your God is here. You belong here. We're going to help you back into the land. And, and this is what uh, we saw Cyrus do as a type of what's coming, that, what Jesus is going to do. But this is, and, and people are trying to do it today, but it's, 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 uh, this is a form of, this is Zionism, what people are doing today. They, God doesn't need the help of Zionists, and God doesn't need the help of carnal man to do his will. He will do it, and he will put this in everyone's heart to just like, wow, they'll just do it voluntarily. It won't be a fight. And the house of Israel shall possess them in the land of the Lord. It's God's land, and they are going to be taken captive 
but then God is going to reverse that captivity, and they will then take their captors captive, and they will have the upper hand. This is the plan of God. The house of Israel, not just the house of Judah, the house of Israel, Israel and Judah, shall possess them, that is the Gentiles, in the land of the Lord. And Isaiah has a lot to say about this. As we get into the further chapters, we'll see this. First, he's going to talk about the servant that's going to enable this. It is the servant of the Lord that makes this possible. And then he'll talk about what the servant of the Lord makes possible. And that's why when when Christ began his ministry, he quoted Isaiah 61, because that's now getting into the section of what he makes possible. And this is this is we're seeing a glimpse of it here. So when Israel is right, they will possess the Gentiles in the land of the Lord. How? For servants and handmaids, that they are going to be the exalted nation. And this is when the world is right in God's eyes. And they shall take them captives, whose captives they were. So there's going to be this reversal of fortune. And they shall rule over their oppressors. This is an amazing thing. Uh, God has chosen these people. The devil is now working hostility and hatred and vengeance in the Gentile nations against them. They're going to be, and, and God says it didn't have to be this way. They could have had peace. They, they didn't have to go through this chapter. But because of their uh, treachery and treason and, and rebelliousness, they have to go through this chapter of captivity and, and subjugation and oppression. But then God is going to come and relieve them and reverse it. And they will then be able to take their captors captive, and their captors will then serve them, and they shall rule over their oppressors. So says God. And it shall come to pass in the day that the Lord shall give you rest from your sorrow. So you have to go through this chapter of sorrow. And God says, it didn't have to be this way, but you chose it. Uh, he, in the day that he gives you rest from your sorrow and from your fear and from the hard bondage wherein you were made to serve. So this is the chapter we're getting ready to see now. We're seeing nations rising up that hate the Jew, that, that, and that, that hate the Christian, that hate the West, and is going to subject us to hard bondage. Uh, and he's going to say, I'm going to relieve you from this sorrow. I'm going to relieve you from this fear. I'm going to relieve you from this hard bondage wherein you were made to serve. You shall take up this proverb against the king of Babylon. So this is what you'll be able to say to the king of Babylon and say, how has the oppressor ceased? It's like, how the mighty have fallen? You know, how did Lucifer fall? Uh, now, how, does this, how did the, the, the power, the global power that this Babylonian king had, how, how did it cease? The golden city ceased. And again, I just want to emphasize Isaiah is very specific. So is John in Revelation. Or I should say, so is God in Revelation. It's the city. The golden city. Babylon is the city. The golden city has ceased. How did this happen? It's miraculous. And, and again, if we, this, all of this is fulfilling what God said when he cut this covenant with Israel. Now, therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed, and they will, he says that in Deuteronomy 30, that when they're scattered and they're on all these nations, Deuteronomy 30 verses 1 to 5, 
that when they're in the, in this horrible condition in the nations, that then they're going to reflect on God, and God is then going to act and bring them back, and they're going to come back with a wholehearted repentance. And then Joel tells us that he's going to put his spirit in them, and and Zechariah shows us that they're going to serve, they're going to they're going to acknowledge him whom they've pierced, and they're going to come into a true relationship with him. And Jeremiah shows us that he then is going to have this new covenant with these people. We we are we are first fruits of the new covenant. But the new covenant is the ultimate. It, it, this is a preview of what God is going to do with them. That he says, Now therefore, in Exodus, if you will obey my voice indeed. So, first covenant they didn't obey. Second covenant they will, because he's going to put his spirit in their heart and his laws, his laws in their heart. And keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people. For all the earth is mine. So, who are we as the the clay to argue with the potter. The the creator has created the earth. The whole earth is his. And he has decided, because of his love and his, his, his agreement with Abraham, his friend, he has decided that the descendants of Abraham will be a peculiar treasure to him. And they will be the head nation. They will be above all people. And he can do this because all the earth is his. We should be grateful to be alive. We should be grateful that he has set in place a mechanism for us to have eternal life. But mankind is very envious. And, uh, you know, they, they, I saw this experiment. I should have actually thought of it here. I saw this uh, experiment with these monkeys where the monkeys are asked to do a task. And every time they complete the task, they get a piece of cucumber. And they're very happy with this arrangement. So they do the task, they get cucumber. They do the task, they get cucumber. In the cage right beside them, there's another monkey. And they notice that when he does the task, he gets a grape. And then when the experimenter, the researcher tries to now give them the cucumber that they were happy with, because they saw that the other monkey got grapes, they, they push, the, they get very angry and they push the cucumber in the researcher's face and they don't want it anymore. Well, that primal behavior, that carnal behavior is in mankind. Rather than to be grateful, to be alive, and to have eternal life, uh, there is this resentment that God has chosen a people to be above everybody else. All the earth is his. Back to Isaiah 48. <clears throat> and they thirsted not when he led them through the deserts. So again, that notion of water. They thirsted not when he led them through the deserts. He caused the waters to flow out of the rock. So, so this is something that he did miraculously as he was working with his people. It says he caused the waters to flow out of the rock for them. He did this, this is in, in the wilderness, that these were his special people and he made a way for them and he's going to do it again. He caused the waters to flow out of the rock for them. He, he split the rock also and the waters gushed out. Again, there's a lot of... Uh, theme here around water, is symbolism around water. So he split the rock also, and the waters gushed out for them. And then he says this, so, so with this very, um, how shall I say this, uh, there's a real care and consideration for the welfare and the well-being of his people. While he's looking after his people, and, and, and he's going to look after their enemies, he says, there is no peace, says the Lord. 
the Lord says this. So, so his people have to go through a, a period of, of a lack of peace. But he says here, there is no peace, says the Lord, unto the wicked. And, and, and the wicked are those who act against God's agenda, who try to destroy God's counsel. He says he's the true God that declares the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, that which is not yet done, saying, my counsel, my plans shall stand. Nobody can refute it. And yet mankind, in vain, fights against God's plan. And anybody that fights against God's plan, God says, is wicked. And so we have today this situation where God has a plan for Judah. The, the covenant remains in Judah, despite their wickedness. And God intends to exalt Judah and exalt Israel. And yet we have a people surrounding Judah, the nation we call Israel today. And, and wherever they are in the world, hunting them down and subjugating them to humiliation. And these people, whenever they meet each other, uh, they, they, they have a, a greeting, As-salamu alaykum, As-salamu alaykum, which in Arabic is peace be unto you. Peace, and they only give it to each other. They don't give it to anybody else. Peace be unto you. But Israel must be destroyed. And God is saying to his people, there is no peace, says the Lord, unto the wicked. And we have to communicate this message to them so they have time to repent and not get caught up in this. And God repeats this in Malachi at the end of the Old Testament. He says, you know, when, when, when Israel feels uh, forsaken and they feel that God doesn't love them, he says, I, I have loved you. And, and they say, well, how have you loved Israel? He says, wasn't Esau Jacob's brother? And yet I love Jacob, but I hated Esau. He says, I hated Esau. This is a covenant hatred. Esau despised the covenant, and so God despised Esau for despising the covenant. He says, I hated Esau and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness, that is the desert. Whereas Edom says, so the Edomites say, and these are Muslim peoples today, we are impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus says the Lord of hosts, this is the God of the universe, they shall build, but I will throw down. And they shall call them the border of wickedness and the people against whom the Lord has indignation forever. So says the God of the Bible. So says the God who declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times that which is not yet done, saying nobody can stop my purpose. And you can know that I'm God because I predict the future in detail and it happens exactly the way that I said it, that I said it would. So this God says that anybody who acts against his plans is wicked. And, they can tr and he's going to destroy them. And they can try to rebuild all they want. It'll never be rebuilt. It'll never be inhabited. It's over. And God is going to exalt Jerusalem throughout the whole world. Back to So now we just come into uh, the first part of chapter 49. Uh, we won't get to finish uh, the chapter. But we'll just do the first part here. He says... Listen, O isles, unto me. So this is now, he's, he's going beyond the, the, the land, the promised land. So, so, so there's a very clear uh, land of promise that God, a specific piece of real estate that God has promised to his people. And that land is, is the issue. Who does it belong to? Who did God give it to? 
who will uh, be the rightful occupant of this land? Where will Christ return to when he returns? When the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven, where will it be located? It's all about this land. And so from this land now, he's been talking to the nations that surround his people. And he's been talking to them. But now he, he, he goes beyond and he says, listen, O isles, the coastlands. He goes beyond the, the land here and into the far, far away lands. Listen, because remember, when the beast power rises, it's got the whole world going after him and agreeing with him and honoring him. So God says, listen, O coastlands, unto me and hearken you people. Now he's speaking to the Gentiles. He's been speaking to his people all along. Now he's speaking to the Gentiles. Hearken, you people from far. The Lord has called me from the womb. Oh, so now this is where, again, it was so helpful and important for us to understand that the womb matters to God. He says, the Lord has called... Now, chapter 49, we're shifting into... So prior to this, God has been talking about Cyrus as his mechanism to save his people. But he's been pointing to an ultimate fulfillment of salvation and redemption for his people. And now we see how. Now, beginning in chapter 49, I believe it's for the next nine chapters, the focus is on this mysterious servant who is going to come to make all of this possible. And so now this servant begins to talk to us through Isaiah, and he says that, the Lord has called me from the womb. So Judah has been treacherous from the womb. But God intends to be glorified in Israel. So there is going to come an Israelite from the womb, a rightful Israelite, a rightful Jew from the line of Judah, who from the womb is going to fulfill the covenant with God and make it possible for them to rightfully come into the land that this land belongs to Israel, but God cannot give it to Israel because he would break his word, that they are unrighteous, they don't deserve to be in the land. And so how does he solve this conundrum of having to destroy his people according to his word, but at the same time wanting to redeem them? He can't just, the way it was with Moses in Egypt, he can't just send, uh, uh, he, he can't just uh, pass over them, uh, the, his wrath passes over them, goes on to the Egyptians, and he brings them out of bondage and into the promised land. He could do that then because their bondage was no fault of their own. They were escaping famine. They went into Egypt, and they were just very um, productive, having lots of children. And it was the Pharaoh who got worried and enslaved them out of fear, but not because they did something wrong. And so God could just then relieve them of that oppression. But they're in this oppression because of their wickedness and because of their treachery. And so because of the covenant, they have to be subjected to this oppression and, and captivity, enslavement and torture. This, this is what they brought upon themselves. And so God can't just come in, swoop in, pass over his wrath over them and punish the Gentiles. That, that would be going against the covenant. The way he solves this conundrum, the way he solves this dilemma, is he sends his son. That God himself comes into the earth through the womb of Judah, from the waters of Judah. 
and he lives by every word of God. He lives a he lives by the covenant. So he when he was here, he quoted Deuteronomy repeatedly. He was very very familiar with the law, and he lived by it perfectly. And they tried to set him up and get him to break the law, and Satan tried to get him to break the law, and he just kept the word of God by every word he lived. Because of that, he has fulfilled the covenant. And so he can now rightfully go into the promised land. And, and God can rightfully give it to him. But rather than just do that, he came to redeem Israel. And so rather than do that, what he did instead was this. He said, I will take the curse of the covenant upon my back. So everything that Israel deserves, put it on me. And if they will accept me as their savior, let them into the promised land rightfully. I am the represent. I am the righteous representative of is of the Israelite nation, and if they will come into me and come in through me, they can rightfully, if they will repent and accept me as their savior, they can rightfully inherit the land, while I inherit the curses of the covenant. And that crucifixion that I suffered is the pain that they deserve. And then he dies. Three days, three nights later, he comes back. And now, now he can fulfill the second exodus. He can fulfill the second Passover fully and the second exodus and bring his people into the land. And we'll talk later about the role of the first fruits. <clears throat> so he says here, He called me from the womb, from the bowels of my mother. So this is the coming through the waters of Judah. Has he made mention of my name? And we see that in Luke, when, when Luke wrote in verse 31, And behold, to Mary, uh, the angel says, You shall conceive in your womb, the waters of Judah. You shall conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. So exactly what Isaiah says here, that he called me from the womb. So from the womb, you're going to bring forth this child out of the waters of Judah, and you're going to call him, you're going to give his name, God saves. And he has made my mouth like a sharp sword. So, so, so we know that the word of God is like a sharp two-edged sword. So he says here, you've made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand has he hid me. So this is a message to the Gentiles, that he's coming with a mouth like a sharp sword, and he's going to slay them with the word of God. In the shadow of his hand has he hid me. So this is the God that hides himself, and the, the, the mechanism for the redemption of Israel has been hidden until now. So he's in the shadow of his hand, has he hid me, and made me a polished shaft. In his quiver has he hid me. This is the language of war. And, and this is, he's going to unleash this power against the oppressors to redeem his people. And we see this in Revelation 19, verse 15, where he says, And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword. This is it. This is the fulfillment of what Isaiah was seeing, that with it he should smite the nations. This is the purpose. He's coming. This is, this is language of war. Put an end to this oppression. So he's going to come with this sharp sword, the word of God, and with it he will smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. They are so rebellious that it is necessary to rule them with a rod of iron to keep them in their place, to make sure that they understand their role in the world and they understand the role of his people, Jacob. And he treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. God is furious. 
And, and we really need to act like God is furious. And we need to come into the Passover, that Christ is our Passover, so that when this wrath, the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God is unleashed on this wicked world, it's going to pass over us. And it's going to fall on the head of the wicked as this mighty warrior comes to redeem his people. Back to uh, uh, chapter 49. And he said unto me, You are my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. This is why it's so important. And a lot of people don't even know that Jesus Christ was a Jew. That this, this would be a revelation to many if you said to them, Did you know that Jesus Christ was a Jew? They, they would be shocked. Doesn't Jesus Christ have blue eyes and blonde hair and kind of like a hippie with sandals? And, and he has nothing to do with Judah. Because that was the Catholic and the Protestant agenda to completely expunge Judaism out of Christianity. But he is a Jew, and it's very important that he's a Jew because God will not give his glory to another. So he says, And he said unto me, You are my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. And we read that last week. Where he says, For my own sake, even for my own sake, will I do it. I'm going to redeem you, not for you, but for my sake. For how should my name be polluted? So you're called by the name of Israel. You have God's name on you. And, and, and God has entered into covenant with you. How should his name be polluted? And I will not give my glory to another. So we have to be very careful about buying into this replacement theology and believing that God will give his glory to somebody else. That would defile his name. It would make him a liar. So he will not give his glory to another. That's why Christ came as a Jew, so that the glory will remain in Israel. <clears throat> and then in, in, uh, in Psalm 22 and verse 3, he says, You are holy, O you, that inhabits the praises of Israel. God will inhabit the praise of Israel forever. God will be the God of Israel forever. He will be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel forever. And he's a God of the living, not a God of the dead. So Israel must be forever. And as long as there's Israel, God will be the God and will be glorified in Israel. So he inhabits, he lives in the praises of Israel. Back to Isaiah 49. Then I said, so listen to, listen to the Savior, the servant. So he's called from the womb. He comes through the waters of Judah. He's there to, uh, he, he's to warn the Gentiles. So this gospel will be preached in all the nations as a witness. Somebody has to warn the Gentiles. Many will convert and repent, but that's not the objective here. The objective is just to make sure the truth is spoken, his people are comforted, that if these people continue in their wickedness, they've been warned. Then I said, I have labored in vain. So he came to redeem his people, and he ended up saying, I've labored in vain. This, this was all for nothing. That's how wicked these people are. Then I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing. And in vain, yet surely my judgment is with the Lord and my work with my God. So although all Israel is unfaithful, I'm not going to be unfaithful. It, the whole process seems like it was a waste of time because Israel is just unrepentant. But 
my judgment is with the Lord and my work with my God. <clears throat> and so we see this in Matthew 26. He says, in that same hour, said Jesus to the multitudes, have you come out as, a, as against a thief with swords and staves to take me? I sat daily with you teaching in the temple and you laid no hold of me. But all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then at that time, all the disciples forsook him and fled. And you could see, it's just like, wow, I've labored in vain. So then I said, I, I, I've labored in vain. All the disciples forsook him and fled. And in Luke 22, we see, and the Lord turned and looked upon Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said unto him, before the cock crows, you will betray me three times. You, you claim to love me and you're with me and you're right there with me and you'll die with me. Listen, before the rooster crows, you're going to betray me not once, not twice, but three times. And you can imagine how painful, we know how painful it was for Peter because he says he wept bitterly, but you can imagine how painful it was for the Lord. And so there's this moment where he says, I've labored in vain, back to Isaiah 49. And now, says the Lord, that formed me from the womb, from the waters of Judah, to be his servant, this suffering servant. And this is what um, the Jews did not understand. They're looking for their Messiah. They're looking for the Messiah. He's coming as a mighty king. He's going to put down their oppressors. And when Christ came as the suffering servant, they didn't understand it. And they didn't recognize him because they didn't recognize how wicked they were. They didn't understand that he had to come and because they would not live by the word of God. They call on the God of Israel, but not in truth, nor in righteousness. And because they would not live by the word of God, it was impossible to save them. For God to be a righteous God and save them, he would be breaking his covenant. So they did not understand that the suffering servant had to come and had to live by every word of God in order to make the path of salvation possible for his people. So he says, and now says the Lord that formed me from the womb, from the waters of Jacob, waters of Judah, to be his servant. Now, why did God send Christ to earth? Why through the waters of Judah? Why? Why, why this suffering servant? So that we could save all mankind just like that? That's not what the scripture says. He says, he formed me from the womb to be his servant. Why? Why a servant? Why a suffering servant? To bring Jacob to, again to him. So there is a purpose here where God is working to bring Jacob to him. That, that is what this is all about, is to bring Jacob to him. There's a mission. There's a reason why God came to earth. Though Israel be not gathered, they're, they're stubborn, they're rebellious, they, they will not cooperate. Though Israel be not gathered, yet shall I be glorious in the eyes of the Lord. So he will not fail in this mission. And my God shall be my strength. So Christ is determined to succeed in his mission. And, and this, this is why he came as the suffering servant. <clears throat> he says, Yet shall I be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. And he said, It is a light thing that you should be my servant. Why? What is the purpose of the suffering servant? To raise up the tribes of Jacob. I'm not making this up. This isn't coming out of my head. 
I'm reading the text over and over and over again. This is the purpose of Christ. It, it, that, and, and God is now saying to Christ, look, it's no light thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob to restore the preserved of Israel. This is why the suffering servant had to come. And this is why he said to, John, to John's disciples, go and tell John the things that you see so he can come back and read these scriptures and understand what my purpose is. It's to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to, re to restore the preserved of Israel. This is the mission that God gave Christ. And then he says, in addition to that, I will also give you for a light to the Gentiles. And I realize it's a bit past 830, but I, I want to uh, tie this together because there is an order of operations. There is an order of operations here. So people just think, oh, Christ came to be a light to the Gentiles. Isn't that wonderful? He used to, he used to be focused on uh, Judah, but now he's just a light to the Gentiles. And so forget about Judah. There's an order of operations. And in order to be the light to the Gentiles, Israel has to be restored. It is, it is his glorification in Israel that becomes the light to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles come to this light, this glorification in Israel. In fact, it would probably take me uh, the better part of 15 to 20 minutes to, to unpack this. But uh, so let me let me let me stop it here and we'll just read this verse again that in Christ's discouragement, God encourages him to say, look, this is no light thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob, this this rebellious people, this people that have broken the covenant over and over and over again. And yet I promised my servant Abraham that I would be glorified in his descendants. It's no light thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel. So there's a lot of Israelites that are going to get wiped out, but there is going to be a remnant that God will be glorified in. In addition to that, he says, I will also give you for a light to the Gentiles that you may be my salvation unto the end of the earth. And we see we will see that. In fact, I'll stop there. But you'll see when we get to uh, Luke that that this was prophesied that he would be a light to the Gentiles. But Isaiah doesn't leave us hanging here to be all confused. Is he is he doing this to restore Israel, or is he doing this to save the Gentiles? Isaiah tells us the order of operations and how he must be glorified in Israel, and that is the light that goes to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles must come to Judah. The Gentiles must come to Israel for salvation. And so God willing, we'll cover that next week when we finish off Isaiah uh, chapter 49 and, and then hopefully go into chapter 50 as well. Uh, what a mighty God we serve. This is ancient text. God has spelled it all out in detail. And he challenges anyone to undo what he has said challenges anybody to not bring to to, to 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 handcuff him so that he's not able to bring to pass what he has said it cannot be done god's plans cannot be frustrated it's impossible for god to lie it, the whole universe was created with his word 
Let's hang on the word of God. It's a crazy world we live in. It's an insane world we live in. The, the, the wicked, none of the wicked will understand. They're going to wax worse and worse. We're going to see wickedness that would not even enter into anyone's imagination except the devil that has a grip on this world. And all of this is coming to pass so that the, the words of God through the prophets must be fulfilled. What a mighty God we serve. Jesus Christ, our King, our Redeemer, our Savior, our Husband, our mighty God. I'll join you on the chat.